Well, I'm going to encourage you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning as we continue our sermon series, as we look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Our sermon series is entitled Christian Counterculture, and uh, we want to discern from Jesus' words what that counterculture looks like, what life in the kingdom under the lordship of King Jesus looks like. And so today, we look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, with a call to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is a Christian supposed to do in days like these? Now, if you haven't used those exact words yet, you have likely asked yourself a similar question in recent days. Days when among our youth and our young adults, to be a Christian has become increasingly unpopular at best, and a sure path to social outcast status at worst. Plenty of researchers and journalists have linked such realities to the growing category of what are known as ex-evangelicals, former Christians in our culture. It wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't be honest to imply that everyone who walks away from the faith does so simply because it's less popular today, because the reasons for departure are highly individual, they're varied, they're complex. We want to respect the individual story of each person, but... It is, at minimum, a noteworthy coincidence that many are walking away at a time when following Christ carries increasing social stigma. It costs more to be a Christian today. And then among the, shall we say, not as young, myself included, it seems like being a Christian became a social no-no almost overnight. One day, it was a relatively polite, please keep your religious views to yourself at work. And the next day, it felt like harassment, merely for the offense of daring to hold to traditional Christian beliefs. And now, at least some signs point to a shrinking number of professions that will even be open to us as Christians, to our children and grandchildren in the days to come, in the decades to come particularly. Now, of course, genuine Christianity, informed not simply by Christian subculture or celebrity preachers, it's always been countercultural, because no human culture has ever come close to perfectly applying God's word to its governing principles, its legal structures, nor its daily life, and that includes the United States. 
So the Christian, even living in a Christian nation like ours, is always forced into choosing between faithfulness to God and the cultural status quo. But I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling that here in the United States, being a Christian has become increasingly unwelcome. And so we ask our question again, what is a Christian supposed to do in times like these? Well, in one word, remember. Now, if you're someone who takes notes during sermons, there will be four main ideas this morning, four things to remember. And the first is remember who you are, who you belong to. So if you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, believing that he paid the price for you on the cross, died in your place, raised from the dead, restored you to God by no effort of your own, guaranteed your eternity with him and placed his Holy Spirit inside of you to enable you to live for him. In short, if you are a genuine Christian, a follower of Christ, then who are you? You are a child of the living God. You are an adopted son or daughter of the king of kings. You are a citizen of no ordinary city, no earthly city or nation, but rather you are a citizen of heaven. The Apostle Paul, who knew an awful lot about living faithfully in hostile cultures where it was unwelcome to be a Christian, just read the book of Acts. Paul says, in Philippians 3:18 through 20 really he contrasts on the one hand the enemies of the cross of Christ and on the other hand citizens of heaven and the way he contrasts them is where their eyes are set the enemies of the cross of Christ have their minds and their eyes set on earthly things they're looking down they're looking at this life and they're focused here but the citizens of heaven well they're different they're looking to Christ. So what our minds are set on makes a huge difference in how we respond to a theoretically increasingly hostile culture. Now later in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul goes on to say that not only are we citizens of heaven, we are ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of the kingdom of God. So as we think about what it means to be an ambassador, we remember that an ambassador may serve the nation in which she is stationed, but her first allegiance is not to the place where she currently lives, but rather to the nation that sent her there. So a faithful ambassador can never forget who he represents. Well, as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, we may live in the United States, and we are to work for the good of our nation, but there will be a day when we are no longer American citizens. That's temporary, but we will be citizens of the kingdom of God forever. That is our real citizenship, and that citizenship never ends. The Apostle Peter, likewise, in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, a book that is so packed with information on what it means to suffer as a Christian. He tells us that we are aliens, strangers in this world, that we are meant to live so differently from the world that people cannot help but to take notice because, well, 
we Christians are odd. We're strange, foreign. We don't quite fit in. And Peter intends that the watching world would, in his words, see your good deeds and glorify God. So he directly connects how the world views God, how the world sees our Father with our actions. And our actions will seem strange. They will seem distinct to the world. And as we'll see later, that connects with how they see God. So the first thing we need to remember in dealing with an increasingly hostile culture is that we must remember who we are. We must remember in the midst of opposition and persecution for our faith that we are citizens of heaven. We are ambassadors of God's kingdom. And frankly, we're odd. We're strangers on earth. And that means some people will hate us for it. And the second thing then, we need to remember that Jesus promised that his followers would be hated. It was not a surprise to him. In John 15, mere hours before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples this, if the world hates you, or that could possibly be translated since the world hates you, keep in mind, or in our verbiage, remember, it hated me first. You do not belong to the world, Christian. That was our first point. Remember who you belong to. You don't belong to the United States. You don't belong to this earth. You belong to God. So he says, you do not belong to the world. Rather, I, Christ, have chosen you out of this world. And then he says very specifically, that is why the world hates you. The world hates you because you don't belong to it. You belong to me. And he goes on in the next chapter, still on the way to his crucifixion. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. We talked a few minutes ago about young people who are leaving the church, possibly because it's become unpopular, because I'm being hated and I don't like being, I mean, who likes being hated? And so we have some people who seem to be leaving because it's unpopular. But Jesus said, I'm telling you ahead of time. Expect that you will encounter hatred. And I'm telling you this so that when you do, you're not surprised. Because if you're surprised, you might end up going astray. You might walk away from the faith because you're so shocked at being hated. So, so don't be. Hatred is to be expected. And he goes on to say, they will put you out of the synagogue. Now, to a modern Christian, being put out of the synagogue might seem like no big deal. I mean, I don't even go to the synagogue, so okay. Well, the synagogue was the cultural center. That was where Jewish life happened. In essence, to be kicked out of the synagogue is to be told, you don't get to participate in the culture anymore. You are not one of us. That's what's going to happen to Christians today. You're going to be told, you don't have a place in this culture. You don't belong to us. You're too odd. You're too strange. And he goes on to say that a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do these things because they have not known me. They have not known the Father or me. Why are we persecuted? Well, according to John 16, 
We're persecuted because our persecutors don't know our Father. Because they don't know Christ. And if they did, they wouldn't persecute us. So what do we want? We want them to come to know the Father. We want them to know Christ. We want them to become one of us. Not just so that they won't persecute us anymore. That would be nice. But because that's what they need. We'll see in Matthew 5, if our enemies are going to see God, then it's a non-negotiable for us to represent Him, to resemble Him in the way we react to the persecution we suffer. Now, perhaps you're wondering, are we really persecuted in the United States? Some of you will rightly point out that persecution is a lot worse in other cultures in the world, and that is true. But some of you may be thinking, even the idea that we're persecuted at all, is there really increased hostility? Is that claim overblown? It's a fair question. And sociologist uh, George Yancey from Baylor University has engaged in significant research on the topic of anti-Christian bias in two books. Uh, the first aptly titled, So Many Christians, So Few Lions, and the second, Hostile Environment, Understanding and Responding to Anti-Christian Bias. Uh, those two books, he delves into that, and time prevents us from delving deeply into that material this morning. Uh, but I do want you to know there are a handful of copies of the second book for sale in the lobby this morning. Uh, we don't make any money when we sell books. That's not our purpose. Uh, this is not money changers in the temple. Please don't feel the need to go out and flip the tables on your way out today. Um, we sell those to you at the cost that we pay for them. This is just a means of ensuring that there are ready-made available resources to you in a convenient way. So you can find that second book, Hostile Environment. Highly recommend it uh, to you. Yancey sees evidence that, yes, in fact, some Christians exaggerate the claims of hostility, but he sees others that minimize or deny it altogether, whereas his research demonstrates that there is, in fact, considerable anti-Christian bias in our culture today. His research notes patterns of bigotry, hatred, prejudice, stereotyping, and dehumanization toward Christians. Yancey's book digs into the nuances of how we should respond, but for our purposes this morning, this quote is most important. This is a reality we have to deal with. We cannot escape it. So, how do we do so? Well, first we remember who we are and who we belong to. Second, we remember that Jesus promised that his followers would be hated. And third, our main text for this morning in Matthew 5, if you get nothing else, get this. Remember your purpose. Bear the family resemblance. We are meant to look like our Father. That language is all through the New Testament. We are meant to image forth God to a world desperately in need of Him. And that includes, and maybe mostly includes, as most important above all things, how we react when we are persecuted. Matthew 5, 43 through 48 is most famous for those three words, love your enemies. Hard words. 
And for many of us, this might be the most difficult command of Jesus to follow. One veteran in our congregation reminded me rightly a few months ago that this is especially hard for those who have been to war. Our veterans, and we honor you and love you and are thankful for you, have seen enemies face to face in ways that most of us cannot even imagine. Perhaps though you can relate even if you haven't been to war. You've suffered. You've been abused. You have been mistreated in ways that you find frankly impossible to forgive. So love your enemies. Well, thanks for that preacher. Nice little glib, happy statement that makes it sound so simple and so easy. Well, just love. Well, please know that Jesus was fully aware of what he was asking here. And he is fully aware of what you have suffered and seen. He knows how hard it is. And nothing he said or that I say from this pulpit this morning should be heard as minimizing any of that. This is a hard command. Let's just be honest about it. This can feel impossible. But it's not the only difficult thing Jesus has asked of us, is it? Just in the opening to the Sermon on the Mount, and if you have your Bible with you, keep it open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look through what has preceded this passage in the Sermon on the Mount very quickly. Jesus has already turned our understanding of the world upside down. Some people have said the Sermon on the Mount is all about how citizens live in the upside down kingdom of God. First, he tells us what it means to be blessed. Blessed are those, blessed are those. And he doesn't say blessed are those who have wealth, safety, and health. It's not what you hear from the prosperity preachers on TV. Rather, it is poverty of spirit. It is those who mourn. It is the meek. It is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is people who are people of mercy. It is those who are pure in heart. It is the peacemakers. And if you're looking at the text, notice the peacemakers will be called sons of God. The peacemakers will image forth the Father in a noticeable way. But then he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted, insulted, falsely accused. And if that's not enough, he says, when this happens to you, rejoice. Who? Easy? Simple? No, it's hard. It's incredibly difficult. And he connects all these things and more to this idea of salt of the earth and light of the world. Before he talks about salt and light, the last thing he talked about was rejoicing in persecution. So connect these things. When we are going to be the salt of the earth and light of the world, it directly connects to how we respond to the persecution we receive and the hardships we endure. That's when we are really salt and really light. It's not just when we wear a nice t-shirt, put a nice bumper sticker on our car, and share Bible verses on our social media. Those are not bad things, by the way. Please don't feel like, wow, the pastor's really ripping into me this morning. No, those are good things. But salt and light, at least in the context of Matthew 5, is how we respond to persecution, mistreatment, being insulted, being falsely accused, persecuted. 
So somehow, the way we respond to those things serves to bring flavor to a dull and dying world and light to a dark and hopeless world. And is that easy? Nope. That's difficult. And if that's not enough, Jesus then tells us that our righteousness is supposed to be even greater than the righteousness of the strictest, most religious people of his day. In fact, if it isn't, we certainly won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And to illustrate that truth, Jesus goes on for the rest of the chapter to present six examples, six, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you statements. And first, it's not enough not to murder. You shouldn't even hate. Difficult? Yeah. Next, it's not just don't commit adultery, but don't even lust. Also difficult. And even more difficult in a day and age like ours. Then it's, no, providing a certificate of divorce isn't what God wanted. He actually doesn't want you to divorce at all unless absolutely necessary, which it may sometimes, in fact, is sometimes. Is that hard? Oh, that's very hard. In fact, the disciples of Jesus got really worked up about that one specifically. Fourth, you think you're doing well because you fulfill your oaths? No, no, no. Go deeper. Be such an honest and trustworthy person that your very word is your bond. You simply speak and people know it is done. That's hard. Difficult. And then, it gets really difficult. Don't resist an evil person. In fact, be willing to suffer unjust loss as a follower of Christ. That's tremendously difficult. And if all that's not hard enough, then we come to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if we find loving our enemies to be difficult, and we do, and it is, well, that's just consistent with everything else Jesus has already said. And it highlights the fact that we cannot do it on our own strength. It is impossible. When the disciples freaked out about divorce, well, who then can be saved? Jesus responded, what is impossible with man is possible with God. When we live out the things Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, both we and the world that's looking at us ought to know, hey, this was not our strength. It's our Father working in and through us. It is all about Him. All through the Bible, including here, it is all about our Father. And so let's work backwards through the text this morning, starting with verse 48. You think it was already hard? How about this one? Be perfect, just as your Father is perfect. What's the goal? What's the standard? Perfection. What does it mean to live as part of this upside-down kingdom? Be perfect as God is perfect. Difficult? Incredibly. But it's what Jesus wants of us. And if these things are the standard of behavior to earn heaven, as some have thought over the years, well then the Sermon on the Mount is the most hopeless thing you can ever hear because you cannot attain it. It is impossible. You can't do it. Which is why we praise God that Jesus himself did that. 
that he was in fact perfect as his father was perfect, that he fulfilled every letter of his commands in the Sermon on the Mount and so much more. Now, does Jesus intend for us to live this way? Yes, he does. Please do not hear this minimized. Like, well, seeing as Jesus did it for us, we can just ignore all that. He still wants us to live that way. Does he expect that we can do it on our own? No, absolutely not. But because he lived it for us, his righteousness counts as ours when we admit that we can't live up to this, when we confess our sinfulness, when we trust his sacrifice for us. And not only that, but when we do that, he then empowers us to start moving toward this seemingly impossible standard by filling us with his spirit continually over the course of our lives so that we get closer and closer and closer to that with each passing day. Now the word for perfect here also carries the idea of complete or mature. The father is complete. There is no lack in our Father. He always does what is right, always does what is good, always does what is holy. He is righteousness, goodness, holiness personified, complete. And so for us to become mature in Christ means representing the Father, becoming like Him, becoming mature, becoming complete, simply because we're His children. And that is what He is. And our job and our joy is to increasingly bear the resemblance of Him. Verse 46 and 47 provide two very clear examples of what incomplete, immature resemblance of the Father looks like. Oh, you love those who love you. No prize for that. No accolades. Everyone does that. You greet only your brothers, your tribe, your people not impressed. Why? Because anyone can do that. People do it every day under their own power and strength. There is nothing countercultural and nothing distinct about that. No one will look at you when you love only the people who are like you and say, wow, you really like your friend group, don't you? There is something different about you. How do you manage to do that? I want to know more. Nobody's impressed. Now, should you still do that? Well, yeah, but that's just normal. And if that's all you do, then you will never be able to look at somebody when they ask you that, because they won't ask you that. You don't get to say, well, let me tell you about God, my Father, because He's the one that enables me to do this. You see this strange, odd, foreign, distinct way that I'm living? Yeah, it makes me go crazy too. I don't know how I do it. It's only God in me that allows me to do it. Can I tell you about him? That won't happen when we only love within our enclosed tribal groups. Jesus talks about the worst of Jewish sinners, tax collectors. He says the tax collectors, they love their fellow tax collectors. Nothing impressive. But it's as though Jesus says... Um, my disciples, how about you love the tax collector? And they might have said, whoa, Jesus, that's going too far, don't you think? I mean, Jesus, you, you, you do know what the tax collectors do, right? 
You, you do know that they rob us constantly, and they help our occupiers, those colonizing Romans, to dominate us. You, you're aware of that, aren't you? Which is always a bad question to ask Jesus, right? You're aware of that, aren't you? Uh, yes, thank you. I'm very well aware of that. Love them. In fact, I want you to be distinct, and that would be distinct. That, if you were to love your tax collector, that would make people wonder what was different about you, and then my father gets glory because you get to talk about him, and that's why I'm here, for my father to be glorified. In fact, you know what? My beloved disciples, I'm going to take this a step further. I'm going to take one of those tax collectors, and I'm going to invite him to join our group. Love him so that the world will see how distinct you are, that they will notice. Now, of course, we are told to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. If you think for a moment that you only have to love your enemies, you don't have to love the people in this room, I've got bad news for you. You still have to love them too. We're supposed to be one in Christ. We're supposed to be unified. Jesus is commanding more than loving the people in the body of Christ, but he is not commanding less. And if we're honest, we have a hard enough time even doing that, don't we? In fact, George Yancey in his book asks us, do you love only those Christians who vote the same way you do in politics? Do you love only those who support the same cause you do? Who dwell in the same social circles as you do? Well, well that's, that's great. But uh, non-Christians do that all the time. But what if non-Christians looked at the church and saw that political, racial, socioeconomic, and social differences did not keep us from deep, deep unity in Christ? Now, that would be distinct. But what would be even more distinct is if we loved those of whom that is not true, people so different from us who weren't even part of the family of Christ. That would get the world's attention really distinct. Verse 45 is the key to understanding our text this morning. It answers the question, why should we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's why. Now hold on a second. I thought we already established we're already children of God. Yes, as a Christian, you are a child of the living God. So it's not that you earn child status by loving your enemies. Oh, you loved your enemies? I'll adopt you now. It's not the way that works. It's rather when we act like our father, we resemble our father, we are seen as bearing the family resemblance. We are seen as children of God. Through loving our enemies, the world sees a picture of our father who is unseen to them otherwise. How are we resembling our Father when we do this? Well, these verses make it clear. Because when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we act like the God who does that all the time. Not just occasionally, but every day, over and over and over and over, God loves his enemies. The sun rises, God is loving his enemies. The rain falls, God is providing for his enemies. And those are but two examples of how God does not discriminate in his provision for mankind. Look around you. 
It's not as though a rainstorm comes and it only falls on the gardens in the neighborhood that happen to belong to Christians. And it's not as though uh, the sun rises only on some houses in Zion in the morning. It rises on all of them. No sun, rain, and a thousand other provisions come to both believer and unbeliever. So if we're going to image our Father to a watching world, we should be people who shower our love to everyone around us. We are to seek the welfare of everyone so that they may know the Father. And we're to do that especially for our enemies. Verse 44 makes it clear that Jesus is not giving us an easy task here, as though love your enemies means love the guy who cut you off in traffic. Love the grocery bagger who had a bad day and was disrespectful uh, to you. No, he says pray for those who persecute you. Pray for the person who's trying to get you fired for not submitting to the latest social program. Pray for the legislator who is out to get you. Pray for the cultural icon who thinks the world would be better off without you. Pray for the terrorist who wants you dead. Pray for those people. And while these verses don't give us a lot of clear direction on what love for enemies will look like, though it does hint that we will provide for them through our generosity, through our work, it does give us one specific. At bare minimum, it means prayer. And so it invites us to ask questions like this. Do we spend as much time praying for the people we consider our enemies as we do complaining about them? Do we pray for their welfare, for them to come to know Christ as we ridicule them? Is it possible that more prayer and less vitriol from Christians toward our enemies would make a difference in this world? It's not a hypothetical question. Jesus answers it right here. Yes. Yes, it would. That would bear the family resemblance and identify us as God's children and just maybe They'll want to know more about the Father we love. Verse 43 says it's because it would be so noticeably distinct from a culture in which loving your own tribe is nothing significant. We live in a world full of delineated interest groups that bond around a common trait or belief and proclaim their love within that group while vilifying anyone who opposes or disagrees with them. And all too often, we Christians are so guilty of the same thing. We live in the midst of a cancel culture world. Find a flaw, find an error, find a sin, expose it, proclaim it on every social media platform possible. Dethrone that person. Silence their influence. It's vicious and it's graceless. And we do it to those who oppose our faith, but sadly, we also do it inside the church. We take a brother or sister in Christ, and if they don't see it the same way we do, they become the enemy. Now, how in the world would I know that? Because my own heart is far too prone to that than I would like to admit. Because there are times when the Holy Spirit doesn't just tap me on the shoulder, but whacks me upside the back of the head with a blow. He shows me that at some point, some brother or sister in Christ, I somehow moved without realizing it from disagreement with them to literally thinking of them as my enemy. And I have to repent. 
So there's at least one person at CCC for whom that's true. Maybe two or three. Jesus is talking about loving our actual enemies. But surely we're also meant to love those who aren't our enemies, but we tend to see as enemies in a given moment as well. So in summary, what is at stake if I don't love my enemy and pray for those who persecute me? Just the reputation of my father on earth. That's all. Is that important to me? To us? Oh, and the ability for the world to see his love clearly. That's all. If I want to see him glorified, if I want to see enemies of the cross become citizens of heaven, then Jesus says, I have no choice but to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. And while that is not easy, it is what he calls me to. And so I have to pray for God's help, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help me be more like Randy Alcorn and his church when they were picketed by a pro-choice group of protesters during a Sunday morning service because Randy Alcorn was so involved with the pro-life movement. They were trying to interrupt the service. So what did Randy do? He said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, real quick, go grab the tables, grab the chairs. Oh, also in the donuts and the coffee, let's take them outside. Set them up in the parking lot and on the sidewalk and said, will you come sit with us? That was distinct. They bore the family resemblance. They looked like our father, and it was noticeable. In fact, it was so noticeable that the next week, a Christian group protested them for having coffee and donuts with a pro-choice group. Let that sink in. I want to look more, and I need the Holy Spirit's help to look more like Rachel Denhollander, who stood before the nation and while mincing no words about the evils he had committed and the judgment his actions deserved, implored her abuser, to turn to Christ. Oh, she looked like our father. And it was noticeable to a watching world. They paid attention to that. Or Nadine Collier and others who publicly forgave white supremacist Dylan Roof after he murdered their families in racist hatred. In a Bible study, he was attending with them where they had done nothing but love him. And these people encouraged him to turn to Christ and offered him forgiveness. Oh, they represented our Father well. And it was distinct, so distinct, that Charles Cook, an atheist who writes for the National Review, tweeted afterwards, I am a non-Christian, and I must say, this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. He noticed because they loved their enemies and it was distinct. And he wanted to know more about our Father. So remember who you are and who you belong to. Remember that Jesus promised that his followers would be hated. Remember your purpose. Bear the family resemblance. The world needs it. But most of all, the backbone is to remember the cross of Christ. Remember that any good leader, like any good leader, Jesus never asked us to do anything that he did not exemplify himself. When he went to the cross and died in the place of sinners, he loved his enemies to the fullest. Like Rachel Denhollander and the families of those murdered by Dylan Roof, forgiveness was on the lips of Jesus as he considered his earthly enemies and persecutors. 
His command to love our enemies would be just one more piece of moralistic baggage to weigh us down, an unattainable standard, no hope, were it not for what happened at the cross, where Jesus exemplified this command and forgave his murderers. But that's not all he did. He also loved them by taking their sin upon his own shoulders, unjustly suffering their punishment and ours out of love. We once, don't forget, were enemies of the cross of Christ. And he died for us. But that's not all he did. He also purchased forgiveness for all who could never live up to such commands, which is all of humanity. Who could never reach the maturity and the righteousness required. But that's not all he did. He also made a way for the Holy Spirit to indwell all who would believe and trust his sacrifice for them. Empowering them to become more and more like Christ. Even to the point of maybe one day actually loving our enemies like our Father does. But that's not all he did. On the cross, Jesus was the ultimate portrait of our Father. You want to know what God looks like? Look to Christ on the cross. That's where you'll see it. He bore the family resemblance unto death. He showed us what God looks like. Oh, did he look like his father. And when we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we look like him too. And that is distinct. So what is a Christian to do in days like these? Bear the family resemblance so they see our Father. As your benediction this morning, consider Philippians chapter 2, where we read of Christ, who though He was the image of God Himself, did not, uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and thereby bore the resemblance of the Father to a watching world. May we be like him.